Aloha. My name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace and justice educator and faculty specialist at the Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm so pleased to bring you these conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before. They'll help us be innovative in our thinking, and although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I am very excited to share them with you, as I feel certain they'll help us to refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Kamuela Joseph Nui Inos, a vocal advocate for innovative educational approaches that serve all learners. Kamuela is the director of the Office of Indigenous Innovation for the University of Hawaii. His work focuses on repositioning ancestral practice as contemporary innovation. Kamuela previously worked as the director of social enterprise at Ma'o Farms, a successful organic farm and community social enterprise that supports a strength-based approach to the land and the people who live and work on it. He was born and raised in Waianae on the island of Oahu. He received a bachelor's in Hawaiian studies from UH Manoa, an MA in urban and regional planning, and sits on the boards of numerous community-based nonprofits. He was also a commissioner on President Obama's White House initiative on Asians and Pacific Islanders. Kamu and I are live recording in studio at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Thank you to the incredible team here at the College of Social Sciences Digital Studio for supporting us throughout this journey and for making it possible to bring this series to life and into each of your lives. Welcome, Kamuela. Thank you so much for being here. Mahalo oh, noi. Mahalo for having me, Maya. It's an honor. Thank you. Would you please um, introduce yourself to our listeners uh, here at Brave Through by sharing a bit of the story of your earth and water and the journey that has led you to this place. When you say earth and water, that is a really interesting way. Um, it aligns with some of the practitioner, um, the mentors I've had of guiding me through reclaiming my ancestral practices. Often do our lona or introduction. When you introduce yourself, you talk about before, after your name, where is your mountain? Where's your, where's your stream? And then where's your ocean? So I would say, like, ova o kamuela, no way anai maiao, o kaala ku'u mauna, o honua ku'u kahakai, kawai, and o makua ku'u kahakai. So I'm kamuela <laughs> from Wa'anai. The mountain that raised me was kaala, um, the stream which um, fed the mountain that were emanated from the mountain and fed the practices around the mountain was Honua, and the ocean or the beach that I was raised on is Makua. So that's a little bit about um, the technical parts. Um, I think in the more human side of it, I'm the eldest of five brothers um, of a mother and father that in the early 70s, who even though they were both Native Hawaiian, were college educated and lived in Waianae. And my father especially was really interested and heavily involved and kind of inspired by the civil rights movement and all the other things happening globally in the 60s and 70s, the reclaiming land. So back in the late 70s, my father and a group of his peers, men, women, Hawaiian, non-Hawaiian, 
community members, members of this university, got together and brought water back down to um, ancient terraces. Our ancestors were agrarian people, and they used to grow our staple crop, kalo, our taro, um, and were forcibly removed from that um, practice by interest tied to sugar plantations. So the waters were taken from feeding our waterways that fed our agrarian systems and repurposed to grow sugarcane. My dad and a bunch of his friends um, and peers brought water back down to um, restore that practice out of a sense of justice, but also a sense of inquiry because as Native Hawaiians who had been forced to assimilate to contemporary society around them, they didn't know anything about their heritage. So when I talk about where is my mountain and where is my ocean, that is a real visceral response because so much of what I've learned and known was actually taught to us through the land. And the land for us and our family was always the teacher. The land was the convener. The land held in it the ability to take all of our aggregated trauma and how do you process your trauma and process these hard things and turn it into something productive. So that's my, you know, that's my land and that's my water. Many of our listeners might know you first uh, from your work with Ma'o Farms, mm. a beautiful place in mm -hmm. Waianae. Let's talk a little bit about your time there, mm -hmm. your work with food security, mm -hmm. food sovereignty, yep. uh, item-based education, yep. and ancestral work there. Yep. Perhaps what did that look like, and how did you get involved with that, and how did you make that grow? Sure. Um, well, you can't talk about Ma'o without talking about Kukui and Gary. Um, the fearless founders of Mao Farms. And I was super lucky to be mentored by both of them. So I owe so much aloha to them for how they were able to take me when I did enter and help to shape me to be able to do the work that I do now. And really, Kukui, Mao Farms to me, you can't talk about Mao Farms without talking about Waianae, where we're all from Kukui's Ohana and my Ohana families from Waianae. And Waianae is, if you've ever, if you're not from Hawaii, <laughs> you've never been to Oahu, um, Waianae is on the west side of Oahu, um, the major urbanized island of the eight major islands of Hawaii. Um, and it's a very interesting place. Um, it's predominantly Native Hawaiian. It's one of the largest concentrations of Native Hawaiians in the world. But it's interesting in that the, most of the Hawaiians who live in Waianae, like myself, our families are not genealogically from Waianae. The story of Hawaii really starts with the fact that the ancestors who sailed up north from South Pacific, where they, where they, they migrated from, settled on Hawaii probably about over 1,700 years ago. And over that time had developed a highly sophisticated system that allowed them to be self-sufficient on the most remote set of islands on the face of the earth. And not only were they self-sufficient on islands, they were self-sufficient in their own valleys. Um, and they were able to really develop systems that was taught to us by our landscapes and then passed on genealogically as a science and as technologies embedded with the spiritual center. I tend to think about it as ancestral sciences and technologies of integrated biosystems management. 
because the sciences of our ancestors optimized for calibrating between the needs of people and the landscape. So when you have this really powerful and highly attuned system that was developed over millennia that allowed people to live in relationship with landscape as your family member and to have what your family, what constitutes your family also being your space of education, your space of employment, your space of spiritual grounding. So Waianae is <laughs> where I'm from. There's a whole bunch of Hawaiians that got pushed from the corner. And over several generations, were forcibly normalized to, the, to poverty. So therefore, if you read statistics on the community, you begin to see, well, they're overrepresented and underrepresented in all the places where they should or shouldn't be in incarceration, poverty, health. So the genealogy of practice that my father and Kukui, my huge mentors, come from was, no, we were never poor. This poverty is a recent one, so we have to understand how do we look to when we were well and reclaim those practices, not just as theory and ideology, but with living, like doing the exact same work as your ancestors, but also embracing that you are in a contemporary time and trying to figure out how do you bring these systems intact into a contemporary space to solve for contemporary issues. So Ma'o for me is really an experiment in that. Maybe I appropriated this term over there called indigenization. And that is to repurpose the systems that were thrust upon you to be a vehicle for your ancestral responsibilities. So it was really natural that the things that Ma'o as I understood through Gary and Kukui's kind of explaining to me their vision and mission when I entered was we're working with the two most important assets any community has, its youth and its land. And we're bringing them together to be able to make them productive. And in the productivity, we are able to create contemporary metrics, sales of product and GPAs of students, but those contemporary metrics of success don't alienate us from our ancestral responsibilities. So the way Ma'o was designed when I was there was um, it was a not-for-profit that generated revenue. The revenue-generating part of our organization was at the time we were 24 acres, and it was an organic farm run by the community, with the community board. But the daily operations were run by young adults from our community through a college internship. We would hire young adults from the Waianae Coast to join the farm as interns, where they'd sign a contract to work with us for two and a half years in exchange for the sweat equity. We provided them a full tuition waiver to college and a monthly stipend of, at the time, $500. And we'd ask for a two-year commitment because we'd try to graduate them on time with their associates and then move them on to their baccalaureates. What MAO actually stands for is, it's an acronym, so it has to be all caps. It basically stands for Mala'ai Opio, which means youth garden. But the deeper layer is when the youth cultivate the land, the land cultivates them. So I came on right after I was completing my master's in urban and regional planning, and it had been in existence. This was about 2008. It had been in existence for about eight years. And they were looking at rapidly scaling where they had started with five acres and three students, four students, including my younger brother, Solomon. An important member at the time was Uncle William Isla Sr., who was the elder who lived in the valley. And he came in and he provided Gary and Kukui with mentoring. To me, the internal narrative, what Uncle William taught us was in his mantra, in life, to be successful, you need three things, love, respect, and the willingness to work. 
and when we ground students in that space and we allow them to see that they're successful because they're making themselves successful by getting a college degree, but also they're providing food and leadership for their community, then you really begin to break the back of poverty because poverty is a mental condition as well as a condition of soil. Thank you for sharing that story and, and helping us to understand the fuller picture of what is happening there. I think about what you just said, and it's clear that you are enabling young people to not only develop a sense of responsibility or kuleana but, and connection, but also helping them to think expansively and to lean into their com discomfort and to journey mm. potentially far through education. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the balance between the commitments that we make to the soil and the community around <clears throat> us and the commitment we make to ourselves mm -hmm. um, to navigate and to journey far and yep. to learn from others, you know, as young sure. people? There are two real key components. And one of them was that mentoring was horizontal and vertical. And the second thing is that you have to share risk. So there was no person who worked at that organization that wasn't actively being mentored, no matter where you were situated. And it was really critical for us to learn how to receive mentoring from the young leaders we're working with and therefore be willing to share risk, to not just have a project for at-risk youth to do busy work. And I think that type of commitment to the soil and commitment to ourselves is really critical. One of my, my biggest mentors in life is Auntie Poonani Burgess. Google her or YouTube her. So much of what she's taught me was that your work external to what she, the changes you want to see in the world has to mirror your internal work. And you can't save the world at the expense of yourself. I started in um, Hawaiian studies back in 2001, and one of my kumu who just passed was Holonike Trask and had a chance to learn from, from mentors like that and kumu Lili Kalaka and kumu John Osorio you had a chance to see these mythic figures as humans when you, had a, when you were students of theirs. And it really drove me to help to create spaces of leadership where the myth of yourself, no matter how big you get, doesn't dehumanize you. That you're allowed to be a full human in this space and not have to carry this Jungian persona all the time because that is not an authentic expression of who you are. So I do think during that arc of time, you know, I started with this idea that well, I wanted political sovereignty. Then 10 years of Hawaiian studies and then planning, I was like, well, that's a long-term goal. Okay, maybe let's try to settle for food sovereignty. And we did 10 years of working on a farm and realizing how hard it is to grow food and how much it compels us to have to be in relationship with each other and the landscape and shifting environments and how we have to humble. So after 10 years of food sovereignty, I think what I'm starting to understand now is before we can get to food sovereignty, each and every one of us has to have emotional sovereignty.
for me, I think a lot about how our internal aspiration, how our internal healing has to mirror the external healing we want to see in society. And it can't come at the expense of it, but it really is going to manifest itself most importantly in your own family and your own, your own circle of care. I want to talk about some of the work of Ma'o Farms and, and Gary and Kukui and Antipua and Kumutrask and Osorio and others who you've mentioned and ask you whether you feel good about the progress or the transformation in terms of what is taking place in Hawaii now, um, but also people seeing the gift of Hawaii, as Antipo always talks about, the story of your gift, right? right. The gift of Hawaii yeah. um, and Ike Hawaii, you know, for perhaps other indigenous communities, other frontline communities. How are you feeling about where we are? I'm feeling really good. Things are bad and things are hard and things are tough. But when I say I feel good, I feel that we have way more agency in the generations coming in these conversations because of the brilliance of the leaders that came before us. You're only as good as who you set up to be better. So we never had that kind of system where success was an individual pursuit. The indigenous knowledge represents a corpus of practice that has thousands of years of R&D that's tied to specifically calibrating to a geography and its needs. And there are a whole cadre now of indigenous scientists. I think a lot of like Rosie Aligado, Arakagawa, Katie Kamelamela, some of my peers who are as fluent in contemporary structures as they are in ancestral. And they can be in this space and translate to systems of power the exact value of what our ancestral practices provide. And our ancestral practices are specifically equipped to address the issues we're facing today whether it's climate change or health disparities, all of these different things, we just have the ability to rise to whatever it faces us. And I think these challenges right now are gonna be a catalyst for the reemergence of indigenous thinking. And not as a way that creates us versus them, but like to create the space of rugged interdependence. Like how do we really depend on each other once again? like all of our collective ancestors. That's why I'm feeling hopeful and I'm feeling that there's a lot of credibility and currency. The University of Hawaii, as far as I know, is the first university that's created Office of Indigenous Innovation within the Office of Research and Innovation for a system. This is centered in the research arm of the university and I'm to President, Vice President Basilis and President Lasner given a lot of license to make decisions and to invest in these spaces. I know that there are a lot of challenges I feel hopeful because I feel we are, we are more equipped than ever because of who mentored us to face them. Thank you. Well, you make me feel hopeful too. And I think that was a really powerful message for our listeners. So you brought up the Office of Indigenous Innovation. Yeah. What are you excited about doing there? What's your mm. vision? What are your short-term yeah. and long-term plans? The office was really important. It was created because uh, Matt Lynch, Office of Sustainability, um, really saw an opportunity to bring me into the University of Hawaii. The work at Ma'o is continued to be seen as innovative, not just in Hawaii, as well as another organization. I was on the board for a long time, the Purple Maya Foundation. Um, we're starting to get a lot of buzz nationally. 
and Matt was able to like help to pitch it and wrap it up as a concept, and he pitched it to Vice President Vasilis Ramos. Vasilis was really visionary, and he was like, well, we'll take a chance on it. So for me, um, coming in in the last year and a half since I've been here, it was really important in the first year to be embedded in spaces where learning is happening. Uh, my dad would always raise me, when you go to another person's farm, you don't tell them what to do. <laughs> you, find, you find where it's needed and where it's sometimes the hardest or grittiest work is, and then you go in, you start there. So, so I had three projects I started with. One was with um, Polynesian Voyaging Society and helping them think about um, the Pacific voyage with the specific request on how do we look at what is ways that PVS's work can be captured and translated when they were not on the ocean. So help to the end goal of helping people understand globally the world is a va'a. I had another opportunity to work with Heia community through Senator Kehokalole's office and um, Heia Nur and HIMB Mokoloi just to convene a small working group just to start to look at what could come um, from the development of a circular economy in that space, leveraging what are the community assets, the incredible historical assets Heia holds. And the third was a partnership with um, the Purple Maya Foundation and Alec Wagner at the Purple Maya Foundation and Donovan Kiloha to run a 16-week course called New Features Initiative where we guided UH students through a, what was basically an accelerator of sorts to learn the principles though of indigenous design and values and ethics to begin them thinking about how do you prototype out scalable solutions that really mean something to them and could inform their work. The community as the experts and the university as the allies and the research that's happening at the universities is really affirming what the communities of practices are doing and therefore arming them with the hard data so that they can restore agency where there's political access and access to resources, both political and fiscal, so that they can scale the work. So that's one of many emerging things that are happening through the office. The last thing I'll say about the office, a really important metaphor, metaphor of a PEVA, and it's P-E-W-A. And a PEVA, if you've ever seen um, Native Hawaiian woodworking, when there's a fracture in wood, if there's a crack, the way you fix it is you create a butterfly-shaped wedge and you put it into the crack. And I don't like to use metaphors for things I've never done, so I, I made a PEVA. It's really hard. <laughs> so the important why we use the metaphor of the PEVA is this idea that how do you mend broken spaces? How do you mend fractured spaces? Especially if the space is designed to be a container to hold something precious and it's fractured and it's leaking, how do you mend it? So the PEVA framework to me, in terms of the principle of the office, is based off of three concepts, equity, reciprocity, and transparency. The first thing you have to do when you want to fix a broken piece of wood is be honest, like, do you want to save it? <laughs> because it takes a lot of work to do it. So they, well, I guess if we're going to save this and everyone has to agree that we're going to save it, then let's agree and not be performative. Let's put our money. If we're going to save this relationship, let's do it. The second part of that in equity is to then understand how did the fracture happen? If you don't know how it got broken, then you don't know how to fix it. So then that means having courageous conversations. I, I look to Punihei and the work that she's doing, how she's trying to convene those spaces as something I just am so enamored by. 
be able to talk about how did the crack get created. But the second part, once you want, you know how, why it was cracked, like if it was a wood was rotten or if it was overused, whatever, how are you going to fix it? And that's where the reciprocity comes in. That's when to mend it, both sides of that triangle have to be equally strong. And the third is your evaluative, your evaluation, how are you evaluating this process? So the intervention you design to address the fracture has to be reciprocal. And the third part I think is really critical is transparency. Like the Japanese wabi-sabi, like we honor the fact that we, you, it was broken. Like you don't hide the fracture. You have that fracture be centered so people can see that you took the time to fix it. And it becomes what makes it more beautiful. I aspire in all the transactional stuff we're doing to begin with the relational. And that framework of the PEVA is something I, I hope will be the enduring idea of the office. And thinking about the kintsugi pottery in Japan, where yeah. they take the Painted broken gold. pottery and, <laughs> and gold paint uh, to mend it and, and make it beautiful. Can you tell us something that might surprise listeners? Something that you know, um, but perhaps didn't know some time ago? Something I discovered is you can't do this work without joy. And I've come to love the concept of joy. People talk a lot about transgenerational trauma, but I'm really down for transgenerational resilience. Like how do I embed within the DNA of my progeny and, and those that I was in contact with a sense of joy? It's like we're spiritual beings, physical for a little while. But I think that joy is that that's where the onus on all of us is to cultivate spaces that can hold joy and joy and rigor at the same time. I love that. Can, can I ask you, just on a practical level, as we seek to cultivate that same joy, if perhaps we are feeling battered or broken, mm. can you share with us what brings you joy, where you find <laughs> that peace, that expansiveness, that inspiration and, and humor and play? I found that if you just ask, for the license to feel joyful. You're dealing with a sentient universe. And if you really, really want it, and you really, if you continue asking, like, how do I be joyful? It's less about how do I do it and more about people giving yourself the license to ask for it. Yeah, and recognizing that probably there is a embodied and somatic need <laughs> and, uh, that, that we need to prioritize. And I also think you've given us so many clues that we can extrapolate and use you know this idea of connection this idea of finding a young person and sharing space and levity with them the idea of kind of looking at history and ancestry as mm -hmm. spiritual concepts that are near and not as things to be placed in a museum, yep. maybe having a sense of curiosity, the curiosity of navigators. I want to really underline curiosity because I'm a person that suffered anxiety my whole life. And I would often ask, what is the opposite of being anxious? Is being curious. And like one of like this real dear uh, elder, Uncle Eddie Kanana, he was powerful in so many ways, but the way he was, to me, the most powerful, was he was always curious. 
He was always very gifted and talented. He knew so much, but he retained the ability to be curious, and therefore, he made it okay for men, Hawaiian men like myself, who are really at the formative part of their lives, to be curious too. Now, I do want to underline that if after joyfulness is curious, is so important. Thank you. That's a great way to end our time together. Listeners, Kamwela will be sharing some resources out there that can help you in Hawaii and around the world lead similar conversations and inquiries with curiosity. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.